Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover what happened when the Ultimate Warrior went to WCW. It's Fall Brawl 1998. But first, uh, I guess we got some stuff to talk about from this past week in wrestling, don't we? Oh, do we? Did something happen that you think we should talk about? Remarkable how we decided to start talking about current wrestling and then look what happened. Um, Yet again, we have one of the biggest stories of the year in pro wrestling. CM Punk fired from AEW. Tony Khan pulled the trigger in a move that was announced Saturday afternoon. Gotta say I was shocked. I think it's the right thing to do, but I did not think Tony would have the guts to do it yet. I agree. Um, And I think when the news had first come out, we hadn't yet gotten the news bits about, like, the extra conversation he had with Punk in private where he felt like Punk had threatened him. And the fact that, like, monitors and shit had been flipped on Tony and, like, other people. Like, we didn't understand. All we knew was that he had choked out Jack Perry, which should be enough to get you fired. But the fact that, like, he's... Basically, that the owner of the company felt threatened by this man made it crystal fucking clear why he had to do it right now. Yeah, I'd say as soon as he sent this one to the lawyers, it was over. Like, that's one of those. If you were not going to fire him, you wouldn't have involved outside legal counsel. As soon as as soon as you show the legal counsel the tape of what happened and they do have tape, which I think is the other thing that's damning here and made this worse for him then the all-out fight was they have video of this. They had surveillance cameras back there. So they have this footage of, you know, TV monitors being knocked over and him having to be restrained and even apparently lunging at Tony. Um, Yeah, it just, I don't know what has happened to CM Punk, but, like, this guy needs to take some time off from wrestling and needs help. I don't know if it's, counseling i don't know if it's medication but like these are not the actions of a man in his right mind it sounds like he was just completely out of control let's be clear yeah when you you sent me a text this afternoon which hit me like a lightning bolt where you told me like what if it's cte and like look we're not doctors we don't know this shit but the idea that this man who has always been willing to fight and has always like been willing to speak his mind and stuff suddenly can no longer control himself would so can explain all of this shit, right? Yeah, it's one of those things where if it, if if we found that out, it would just make everything make a lot more sense because yeah, he's always been a chippy guy and kind of a hard guy to get along with, but I don't ever remember hearing about him being in backstage fights before. He always seemed no. more like just a guy who would be a sarcastic dickhead. Now he suddenly wants to fight everybody. He was always beefing with people on the indies and beefing with people, et cetera, et cetera. But he wasn't getting in fist fights everywhere. Like, I can't really even think of any. Even with Teddy Hart, when he wanted to murder Teddy Hart in his sleep, he didn't actually do it. Yeah. So I just... <sighs> I think this was the right thing for AEW to do from like a moral or ethical perspective. I think it's probably for the best for business in the long run. I think it's going to be tough in the short run. This guy was their biggest star. He was their biggest draw. He was the cornerstone of the Saturday Night Collision show. But I just think they needed to get control of this locker room. And if they didn't, 
there was go there was just this was going to keep happening. Like how was there not going to be another fight with the Young Bucks, with Adam Page, with whoever? He was back for a couple months. He got in a brawl. And it sounds like they, he came really close to fighting Dolph Ziggler's brother, too, it sounds like. That easily could have escalated to violence. And, like, I don't want to take anything away from Punk's ability to draw, especially during his first run before, like, the, the whole Bucks thing. He was doing a bang-up job. Yeah. Since he came back, it has not been the same. Like, the ratings no. have not moved the same. The pay-per-views have not moved the same. I don't think we're losing as significant a portion of this roster at this point as I think that we would have been before. Agreed, um, and he can't work with so many of the people you want him to work. And it was just screwing up the company's booking that you had to have this artificial separation, that you right. couldn't have him under the same roof as so many of the other biggest stars. And he couldn't work with a bunch of the other biggest stars in the company. It just, it's not, it was not a tenable situation. Ironically, maybe the best legacy of this run with AEW that we'll have is like having, being forced into that artificial brand split did give collision its own personality in a way that I don't yeah. think it may have had otherwise. And now it's a much more compelling show than I think it would have been. Yeah. And I'm still interested in what we see from Collision. With uh, It sounds like Brian Danielson's going to be the guy there. And, you know, he's not as dynamic a personality as Punk, but he can have better matches than Punk can at this point. This has to become the Jay White show now. I will accept nothing else other than Brian Danielson bang, bang, and Jay bang. White. It has to happen. I was very surprised by th- how straightforwardly tony khan addressed this both you know you expect a press release but you expect the press release to just say we've parted ways with phil brooks i did not expect them to say we fired him for cause and all the other stuff they said and i really didn't expect tony to both address the live crowd in chicago and you know do uh you know for tv cold open to the show saying they'd fired punk and really going out there saying that he felt his life was in danger. I mean, these are the kinds of things that get you sued. Here's the thing. I completely agree with that. So he must have like literal, like he must have a mountain of evidence and like yeah. lawyers. Up sure the, ass. the lawyers have to have signed off on the statement. I don't think the, I don't think the segment that aired on TV was done live. I'd have to imagine right, that right. taped and you know, the company lawyer signed off on the footage. Otherwise but I'm actually intensely stupid. I'm extremely grateful that he did this, though, because what we saw for the first time, yeah, he took responsibility on himself for doing this. And he made himself like, if you're going to boo somebody for this tonight, boo me, not the performers, which was the right thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like he kind of took the bullet and let the crowd get that out of its system. And then they pretty much went along with the show. They cheered the Bucks. Didn't expect that. Yeah, that was a surprise. Um, what do we think is next for Punk? Uh, I mean, do you think he'd want to go to WWE? I think he would. Do you think WWE would have him? I don't think they need him. That's the thing. Do they like, need him? I don't think they do. It's, yeah, it's just... Do you want to risk messing up the good thing you've got going right now? The other, the other thing is, he 
almost uniquely has beef with Triple H more so than Vince. Like for most people, it's like, oh, now that Vince is gone, people will want to work there. But I always got the sense he had more of a beef with Triple H than with Vince. Yeah, I think Triple H was the one who didn't see it in him. So, like, I'm not really yeah. sure. Also, like, who would you have him work with? Because Cody and Roman are busy. Like, if you bring in Punk, it's probably Roman not going to be a long-term role. thing. But, yeah. yeah I would, I, if, if I were bringing him in, I, it would be, you know, debut at Survivor Series in Chicago, work at the Rumble, and then work a WrestleMania match. And that's it. And we'll at that point, we'll reevaluate whether we think this is a good idea to continue. It would not be a long-term deal. I'd maybe give him a one-year contract, but I'd probably do more of just like a, we're going to pay you X amount per match, and you're going to make this many appearances to promote each of those matches. If legacy is something that matters to him, he really needs to do this. He's got to, because otherwise, man, has he torched his legacy at this point. There's nowhere else he can go. Impact is basically the sister promotion of AEW. They're not taking him. Oh, that would in. be and, so sad if he yeah. showed up in Impact at this point. He would be a joke in Japan. He's not over there. He can't keep up. No, just value, no value to New Japan. It's WWE or nothing. And again, like you said, like they're drawing like crazy houses with who they have. Why are they going to like stroke a bunch of million dollars to CM Punk, who they know is a dickhead? I don't know. Yeah. The that's only a good case fit. you can make for it is they're in the midst of TV negotiations, so every ratings point really matters right now. And I do think he would be a boost to ratings in the short term. For sure. I think it's a good idea for both parties to do that. And I, I got to say, while this obviously is negative for AEW, and like in the short term, it's going to impact them, and they're kind of restructuring who the stars in that company are now in a way that I think will turn out to be satisfying. I honestly think this is a stronger company without one person so much higher up above everybody else on the show. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's part of why maybe it could work in WWE is I think they would be able to make very clear to him, you are just coming in as a talent. You are not here to be an agent. You are not a locker room leader. You are just a guy here. Show up, do your matches, have your promos, and shut the fuck up beyond that. Exactly. Like, the only way Tony could get him in the door was to hero worship him to his face and stuff. And, like, he got him in the door and he got all the money that comes along with that. But, like, this is a company that was not built on that. And I don't think it will succeed or fail based on one person. Yeah. So, uh, one last thing. Could he, I, I can't imagine he will ever appear in AEW again. I cannot I, imagine. It would be astounding. <laughs> what, what could, I cannot think of any circumstance where that could Maybe if somebody died and he really wanted to appear on the tribute show, but like even then, I just don't think that there's any scenario where he's ever going to be allowed to appear in AEW again. I think that is absolutely done at this point. We haven't even talked about what I think is the most likely thing to happen with Punk, which is that I think he disappears and we never hear from him again. Like That would be weird. But like but he seemed extremely happy for eight years to just be gone and not even think about it. It turns out that probably would have been the best. I, I genuinely believe that if he hadn't gone to UFC and failed so publicly, oh. he would not have felt the need to do this to like reestablish himself. Like he didn't want that to be the last word in his public <clears throat> life. I feel like the thing about this AEW run was everything he did in front of the camera was phenomenal. He yeah. had. 
maybe the best like in ring run of his career. He just promos were great. Even the fact that he had that good a match with Joe after what had just happened backstage after he had basically quit is insane. He just went out there and you would have never known anything had happened. He went out there and just had an awesome match with Joe and they were seemingly completely professional. The idea we haven't even talked about this. My favorite part of this entire situation is Joe like breaking up the fight, grabbing him, shoving him through the curtain and saying, we're going to go have our match now. Like take her at WrestleMania, baby. The chaos that it sounds like this was backstage where they weren't sure if they were going to be able to do the match at all. And they, yeah, were, they were going trying. around asking the other guys, who like, could, hey, can you go, on, go on first? And, you know, everybody was like, we're not ready. Like, we're not dressed. We're not warmed up. Like, Jericho was like, but we won't be able to do my entrance, which is the whole point of the match. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a mess. And, you know, look. We're, I'm, I'm sure we're not done talking about CM Punk because I don't know. I'm we're never feel like be give done. it a couple of weeks. He'll have done a podcast or something like the guy will never be done with the guy. So I'm sure there's more coverage of this to come. But let's move on to AEW's all in pay-per-view, which against all odds was a smashing success, um, a shockingly good show. Everybody. This company with their backs against the wall, it feels like these guys all went out there with something to prove and absolutely killed it, including the shocking. Who the hell would have thought Brian Danielson was ready to come back? Ready to come back at all, much less deliver a fucking classic with Ricky Starr. I just, yeah. I mean, I texted you. Like before collision being like, okay, so who's Steamboat going to bring out? Is it his 1993 WCW tag team champion partner, Dustin Rhodes? (laughs) Only me and Tony remember that. Yep. But that made it likely that it could happen, to be totally honest with you. (laughs) But I was also like, could he be bringing out the American Dragon? Then we both like, nah, there's no way he's ready yet. Turned out he was ready. Yeah. Um, every match on this show fucking way over delivered, but like this show will be remembered for, again, like you said, with their back against the wall, they built two main eventers tonight. And I don't think it's even questionable. Like Ricky Starks has been made by finally, by getting to have this match, which should have been a match with punk, but this one is way better than that one ever could have been. What an incredible performance from orange cassidy what a That's run the one. he had like legit main eventer at this point you could absolutely put him with mjf the we're gonna look back on AEW, which was originally founded basically to be a promotion for and about hangman page yeah. but we're going to think of like the entire history of AEW as being the story of orange cassidy it's incredible what he what, what they've built in him. And I never would have thought this. Like I the first time I saw him, I was like, what is this bullshit? Like, what the fuck is this drive knockoff? And this he got his inner, your inner his Jim Cornette came out. <laughs> yeah, I just like I didn't get it. And I still kind of don't. But like if it works, it works. And like underneath of that gimmick, which turned out to be like a viral thing that has helped them so much, he yeah. is by far maybe their most popular performer. Like, 
in terms of like how into him fans are, how recognizable he is to random, not even wrestling fans because of all the viral gifs and shit of him. The and, crazy thing is beneath the weird gimmick, he's been doing like Bret Hart level storytelling. Yes. These past couple months in these matches and these finishes he's been coming up with. Like, the the story of a man who defends this belt every week as his body falls apart yeah. piece by Can't piece. Can't even do it's, the punch anymore. But he won't stop. And, like, oh. the what it brought out of him in each one of these matches. And then finally in this match, we've never seen the comedy Orange Cassidy and, like, the serious Orange Cassidy, like, meld. It's always been, like, kind of like a weird, like, I'll be serious now and comedy here. Like, the character really felt like it became whole in this match, as he just did everything, like, in a, like, desperate attempt to keep it. And, like, I'm relieved for him that he lost this belt so he can yeah. take a fucking vacation. I hope they give him a little bit of time. Although he's got momentum, they should give him at least a few weeks off. Yeah, seeing somebody call this, like, a vacation on a pole match where one of these two men gets to actually <laughs> take a week break. John Moxley will never take a vacation. Every time, every time he tries, the company goes to hell. This company owes him so much as being like the one main eventer who won't fuck up. The number of times he saved their ass when they needed it. He's just, what can you say? This company has so many amazing performers up and down that losing like uh, of CM Punk and how much that would throw it into disarray almost doesn't even fucking matter. It just gave more time to other great people who are great. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, and now the challenge before them is build your new CM Punk level star. And right. he does, it does free up some money in the budget. So you can go out there. Maybe it gives you the money to get edge or to get Mercedes Monet or get both of them. And, those things both intrigue me, but really they need to build, you know, Ricky Starks into that star, Orange Cassidy into that star. That's the challenge that now faces them. Without somebody already on that level to beat, it becomes incredibly difficult to raise somebody up to that high in public perception. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. God knows it's been done a couple of times before and it can be done again. I hope that they pull it off. And finally, WWE Payback on Saturday night in a show that was very much overshadowed by the CM Punk news. Um, I thought this was a fine show that very much reminded me of an In Your House from the 90s and not in a bad way. It was just a fun, solid B pay-per-view that kept their stories moving. I don't think I've ever been in the position to say this about a WWE pay-per-view before, but I felt so bad for, for, for the performers and being so overshadowed by the amazing spectacle the week before and one of the highest quality pay-per-views of all time the night after and the giant yeah. news story in between. WWE had no part of this week's news cycle whatsoever. <laughs> no, just, they just put on a perfectly good pay-per-view. I I do think they probably should have put Trish and Becky on in the main event instead of first. I think that was definitely the hotter match than uh, Shinsuke and Seth. But Triple H is really trying to get that world heavyweight title over. And let's be clear. Like, they did a couple of really great things. First of all, that cage match between Becky and Trish was incredible. Trish, Trish is 47, and that may have been the best match of her career. I think it is. That was one of the yeah. best women's matches of a whole time in America. And like, it's not as heralded now. If that match had happened in 2008, it would have blown people's fucking minds. 
Um, but Triple H resuscitated Shinsuke from the scrap heap by letting yeah. him actually cut promos in Japanese. <laughs> this heel run he's on is awesome. Dude, and the this, promos he's cutting are some of the best I've ever seen. The secret, the mystery of what did he tell Seth and it turning out Seth's back is broken. That really got me hooked. Yeah, like, I know about your back. I wanted, I'm going to, I'm going to break your back so bad you can't take walks with your kids because you don't have honor and I don't believe in you. What an evil man. And I love it. This is a direction for Nakamura that I am way here for. Fuck yes. I mean, big upgrade from the goofy guy who dances with Pat McAfee. Yeah, this is great. Like, they're doing great things. Up and down the card, I can't really argue with any of the booking that they're doing. John Cena came back, had, like, a perfectly entertaining role as the guest thing. He had a lot of fun with that. Like very endearing seeing him be the goofy host. Um, I don't cool see, to see him give the rub to LA night. Yeah. I don't seek out WWE stuff right now, but like when I see it, I know it I, it's, it's been a long time since I felt good. bad about WWE stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Since triple H took over the book and it's been great. This is probably, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who on Twitter forums and whatever, who will disagree with me. It's probably the best overall booking we've ever had in professional wrestling across the world. Yeah. Every major company is being booked competently by somebody who knows what they're doing. That's right. That's interesting to say, but yeah, this might be the only time that was true. Yeah. In history. Yeah. It's just, what so, a treat for us. <laughs> so now to go back to a time where it was not true that every company was being booked <laughs> competently. 1998 WCW, the most wonderful place in the whole wide world, except holy hell. Did this show in the Nitros that led to it suck? Like the giant Cheshire grin that Steve oh. gets when he like says that, oh man, we're going back to WCW 98. As compared to the look on my face halfway through one of these shows where I'm like, oh. fuck. How? So, I mean, it had been a while since we, we did, we did the 99 season earlier this year, but it's been a while since we covered a show from this year in 98. But remembering how awesome Bash at the Beach was and how yeah. awesome nitro with the georgia this is just sad in comparison it's remarkable how much they've lost their fastball in a couple months and oddly they actually kind of get it back in early 99 which is the most reviled stuff of all the first the beginning of 99 we both actually enjoyed which i think was nash's influence on the booking here you're just seeing it's clear that like sullivan and bischoff are burnt out they don't have their fastball anymore and, like, maybe they have some kind of idea of what's going on at the top of the card, but the rest of the card is just a mess of nothing. Like, you can feel how much the wrestlers are, like, booking their own storylines. This is the period where Jericho is literally just going out and doing fucking yeah. whatever, and they don't even know what he's doing ahead of time. Just getting to do his own stuff. Gets to pick Ralphus out as his manager just because he thought he looked funny. He goes, like, on this show... He does wrestles a Goldberg impersonator. Like, I'm pretty sure he says in his book that Bischoff didn't even know he was going to do this. <laughs> Goldberg did it, <laughs> sir, didn't know. Uh, Goldberg was not happy with any of this, it seems. But, like, the idea that a wrestler can go on TV and start a feud with a guy against that person's will without them knowing is fucking crazy. <sighs> so, WCW's had an incredible summer. They put... 
40,000 people in the Georgia Dome for Hogan versus Goldberg on Nitro. They did one of the biggest pay-per-views ever with Bash at the Beach 1998. And then they got a ton of mainstream attention from having Jay Leno wrestle at Road Wild and the crossover they got to do with The Tonight Show. Like, Eric Bischoff got to take over The Tonight Show one night from Jay Leno, which is insane. The idea that arguably the most watched show of the week in America got taken over so that they tuned in and just watched Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan chat about stuff. And... I don't think Leno actually wrestling was a good idea. I think he should have just been the manager for a match. But still, they got a ridiculous amount of mainstream attention. I think it was literally front page in USA Today is what I've always heard Bischoff brag about. Like back in the day, like people would talk about becoming a household name. That was really the deal. Because before the age of the internet, it was very difficult to break through and become something that everyone in America knew about. Because there wasn't like a, a central unifying uni- thing where you could just go like Twitter and find out about like some new act that's blowing up and suddenly everyone on the world knows about it. Um, so WCW does manage to break through and become a genuine household name at this point. Which is why the fact that it's out of business three years later is even more crazy. <laughs> So this is the story of the Ultimate Warrior's infamous debut in WCW. It's one of the most maligned and buried storylines in wrestling history. And I feel like something we've really started to embrace on this podcast is kind of going back and questioning the conventional wisdom of things. Yes. But this is a case where the conventional wisdom is right. Upon further review, God, was this all horrible. I think it might actually be worse than the conventional wisdom. Like this is the <laughs> shittiest shit I've ever, because like the booking is what people, mo- some of this. Yeah. Yeah, people mostly point to the booking as being bad, which of course it is, but people rarely point to just how bad warrior himself was. So he debuts on the August 17th, 1998 episode of nitro in Hartford, Connecticut. They didn't promote this at all in advance. Um, I think they were in, they were getting threatening legal letters from the WWF about their use of the Ultimate Warrior gimmick, which I don't think there was ultimately any litigation because they never call him the Ultimate Warrior. They just call him the Warrior, which he had changed his name to. And I don't think the WWF could say they owned that Warrior character because he had played it before he was in the WWF. Right. So and really what even is the character? It's just tassels on his feet. Tassels. <laughs> tassels and face paint, I guess. Steroids. Yeah. So Hogan is in the ring doing a typical self-aggrandizing Hogan promo in the middle of the show. And then the lights go out, music starts to play, and the warrior emerges from the darkness to a huge reaction from the crowd. Crowd explodes when he comes out, even though they have not been primed for this at all. This is, I mean, it's objectively a cool moment, right? Like, WCW has never had Warrior. Like, a lot of the biggest stars have been on one show or the other, but this is like the biggest, arguably the biggest star ever that you've never seen on your show before. Yeah, and most of these fans probably haven't seen him since 1990 because a lot of people weren't watching during his brief runs in the WWF in 92 and 96. 
So, so you, but you know who he is. You just never oh, yeah. seen him before. So you're like, oh yeah, shit. I've seen him since then. It was weird for me. I had heard of him, but I didn't know anything about him. So he comes out and he's scheduled. They've given him eight minutes for his promo. He proceeds to go over 15 and closer to 20. He just will not shut the fuck up. And he doesn't say anything remotely compelling. Just, you know, rambles on and on in his, like, typical warrior bullshit about, like, the spirit inside of a man and all these kinds of things. Just goes on and on. And you can see, like, Bischoff and Hogan's souls both leave their body as this segment just goes on forever. And, like, he has maybe 30 seconds worth of stuff that yeah. he's supposed to say. And so, like, in typical Warrior fashion, you got to remember, in WWF, the crazy promos that we got were the pre-tapes. So that was yeah. the best take they got. <laughs> yeah, And he could do several takes. He was not a guy who did a lot of live promos in front of the crowd. They would occasionally bring him out in front of the crowd on Superstars, but it was not a common thing this is and he had definitely never done it live on live tv so just the madness of being like oh yeah also they did the same thing with piper to the exact same result oh like a year God. earlier so like you guys learned nothing <laughs> so it's totally screwed up the timing of that nitro um they had to go back they had to do like they had to reinsert a commercial break because they had missed one they'd blown right through a commercial i mean for a segment to go it's one thing for a segment to go like a minute or two over but for a segment to go double the length it's supposed to is a big problem for a live show i mean literally we're talking about like well, I guess we're cutting a full match and we got to reinsert this break and the advertisers will be pissed. <laughs> this sucks. The next week, Nitro was at the United Center in Chicago. Warrior did another promo. This time, it seemed like he forgot his lines and he started just walking around the ring for about two minutes as he tried to gather his thoughts. Yeah, this is the funniest part about this, is that it's clear that they were like, okay, we're scripting your next promo. But then he just couldn't fucking remember his lines. (laughs) (laughs) The reaction the second week was not nearly as big as the first week. No, that's generally what happens when you get shit on when you're expecting not to. And just everything he's doing is so hokey and cheesy and so clearly his own dumb shit. The trap door and the smoke and the disappearing. It's just all weird stuff that is obviously his ideas that they're letting him do. I can't. We're going to talk so much about this stupid trap door on this show. And I have some genuine thoughts about that. Yeah. But like. You're right. All this stuff with like the smoke and, but also Hogan loves this hokey bullshit too, doesn't he? He does. He this does, opportunity yeah. to like look into the mirror and be like, the warrior's there, brother. Yeah. Hogan was always like trying to get some bigger movie roles by trying to show his acting chops. 
There's no Hulkamaniacs here. <laughs> it's not hot. <laughs> so our main event tonight is going to be a war games match, but not just any war games match. There's going to be three teams instead of two. And it's really every man for himself because the first man to score a pinfall is going to win the match and get a shot at Goldberg at Halloween Havoc for the title. I know everybody is going to expect me to bury this. You know, they're disgracing the legacy of war games by changing the rules. I actually like this idea. I don't think the execution was good, but I actually kind of dig the idea of, you know, war games, every man for himself being, you know, a special match you do one time. I think this is way better. Like we've covered before. I don't think much of actual war games. Like we've watched a lot of these. Some of them are good matches, but the rules are fucking stupid. The idea that it has to be by submission and you have to wait until 45 minutes into the match. So it's basically like an Iron Man match where the first 30 minutes don't matter. Yeah. Just the simple. Yeah. I think this one, I think for this one, it probably should have been elimination rules. Yes. Elimination rules would make war games way better to me. To me, I also just adding the rule that it, the match could end at any time makes it so much more urgent. Like yeah. those guys got to get out and like fucking save their dude before they get pinned when it's two on one. Like it, it matters. So we've got a WCW team, an NWO Hollywood team, and an NWO Wolfpack team. Team WCW is Diamond Dallas Page, Roddy Piper, and The Warrior. Team Wolfpack is Kevin Nash, Sting, and Lex Luger. And Team Hollywood is Hogan, Bret Hart, and Stevie Ray. The eternal question, is Bret Hart actually in the NWO, or is he just a stooge? That is a really fantastic question because I I feel like he has not been established as a member of the NWO at all at this point, right? I think he definitely didn't want to be part of it, but like the but the booking committee kept trying to get him in there. Now, the eternal question about this show is who the fuck decided to put fucking Stevie Ray in this match? <laughs> The old, well, yeah, I mean, so NWO Hollywood's two legitimate other guys would be um, Scott Hall and Scott Steiner, and they both have other matches, but neither of those matches were, you know, essential on this show. But I mean, the bigger question is why isn't this just NWO Hollywood versus the Wolfpack, first of all? Like, yeah. That- Political reasons, I do wonder, did Hogan just not want to do that because he felt like his team could measure up? I mean, I guess. And I mean, like, it's not like Hogan's taking a loss at the end anyway, because they're going to do the Warrior fuck finish. Yeah. I feel like not having Warrior actually physically be in this match is an improvement that on the match. would have been better, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they, they want to get to Page, which makes it complicated. Page versus Goldberg. Um, so I don't fucking know what any of this is supposed to be, man. (laughs) Not booked on the show at all is Goldberg, which is a puzzling decision. (laughs) It's not like there's a shortage of people 
on this roster. You could have him squashed, including Chris Jericho, which everybody would have loved, including Jericho. To this day, I will never understand why he didn't just do the fucking match with Jericho, murder him. And it's just because Goldberg's too new, he doesn't understand that that would have been, like, good for his character. But, like, what a great moment for Goldberg. Yeah. Yeah, Jericho talks shit for weeks and weeks, and then Goldberg finally shows up and spears him and jackhammers him and humiliates him. Would have been awesome. Ah, that just, what a missed opportunity. I would have fucking given him the TV belt, too. I would have retired the TV belt with Goldberg. Get this belt out of here. Loom in the background here is the return of Ric Flair to WCW. He's been gone since the spring when he had a big blow up with Bischoff over missing a show. They're in the middle of a lawsuit, but they've worked things out and he's about to come back. And I think a lot of people thought he was going to come back on this show because it's Flair country. They held off on it until the next night in Charlotte, which turned out to be an absolutely incredible moment. One of the loudest pops in WCW history. Yeah. A lot of people did think he's come back on the show because Arn had just come back on the Nitro before this, I believe, or the Thunder, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So like, and it's like, oh, he's going to get revenge on Kurt Hennig for what he did to him at Fall Brawl the previous year. I was reading, uh, my wife and I were reading a review that somebody did in the moment of this show because I wanted to try to kind of get in the, oh, the head of somebody who was there. And like, one of the big things was like, People were so fucking excited for the Four Horsemen. Like, the idea of Arn and Flair coming back was, like, all anybody cared about. Which is so funny when you see what's actually going to happen from that, which is essentially nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Yeah. No. I can't even remember. Did they have – was Mongo still in it this time? I I think so. Well, I think they they hyped the idea that there was going to be another member of the Horsemen coming back. It's Malenko. It's Malenko. But like, and I think that people were just like, is that Mongo? Please don't be Mongo. Could it be Tully? No, Tully's banned for life. It's Sid. Oh, I wish. Don't tempt me. But like in this review, the guy's just like, is it going to be Luger? No, it's not going to be Luger. Shut up. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? For a WCW lightning round. We're in 1998. This could be anything. (laughs) Due to being on a Nitro on a night where Raw was preempted, Lodi and Saturn versus High Voltage became the second most watched match ever on cable, trailing Mm. only Goldberg versus Hogan from the Georgia Dome as they drew a 6.77 rating. I'm sorry. What the fuck are you saying to me right now? Lodi and Saturn versus High Voltage drew what was at the time the second highest rating for a match on American cable television in history. I'm sure it was after a Hogan segment or something. But like, if you were Lodi or any of those guys, wouldn't you be like next contract negotiation? Like, hey, 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 look, we're draws. Long before Chris Jericho, Lodi was the demo god. Fucking high voltage, who I didn't even know was still in this company at this point. Oh, Sandman signed a three-year contract with WCW worth $200,000 a year. 
buy a lot of kendo sticks with that. It's pretty good money, especially when you've been getting your checks bounced in WCW or ECW, I'm sure. Um, how do you feel about them going after Sandman? He's a very specific kind of performer for them to have signed. Yeah, I think it makes sense. But they, I think spicing up the shows with a hardcore division was probably a good idea. So I liked it. Yeah, it turned out to work well because apparently, uh, unbeknownst to everyone, Hack is like the most professional, hardest working yeah. wrestler in the business. <laughs> when you get him, it feels like he's a guy who rises to the level of what's around him. So like when you put him in the big time, he acts like it for whatever reason. Yeah. He just wants to read his newspaper and work really hard. <laughs> Executive Nick Lambros was removed from WCW and sent to work on Turner's Football League startup. I have no idea what became of this football league idea. Turner had a football league startup? I guess this was the idea. They had just I think they had just lost uh, the NFL Sunday Night Football moved from TNT to ESPN. So you can just imagine Ted Turner being like, well, if we can't get the NFL, let's make our own football league. God, that man had so many bizarre irons in the fire (laughs) at any given time. Triple H buried Ric Flair in a radio interview saying he was too old and should retire. That's funny. Hilarious, yeah. Especially because Flair desperately wanted to retire until Flair until Triple H showed up and said, "No, no, 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 you're not allowed." Lou Albano showed up to a WWF house show at Madison Square Garden and passed out and had to be revived. Well, that's a bummer. Fuck. Tough times for Captain Lou. Love you, Lou. Justin, just incredible got married and Joel Gertner was one of his groomsmen. I really hope he gave the toast in character. Jesus Christ. Give that man a mic at your wedding. You deserve whatever you get. Joel Gertner turning out to be a giant scumbag in real life was one of the least like surprising things yeah. I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, who would have thought? Uh, Kurt Angle signed a contract with the WWF. Apparently going broke convinced him that he actually could lose fake wrestling matches. Oh, is that what happened? Is that he just ran out of money? I mean, I don't, I, I assume cause there's no money in amateur wrestling. And then yeah. I don't know. He, he didn't have a real prolific career. He was, he was doing, wasn't he? He tried to do like, I think some local news as a sports caster and he wasn't good at it. And uh, he was in that Papa John's commercial that they made fun of on Raw one time. God. Yeah. Poor guy. Uh, Bart Gunn knocked out Steve Williams in their Brawl for All fight. You know, if they hadn't made him fight Butterbean, wouldn't we remember Bart Gunn as being like a secret what a hero? Badass. Because he I was mean, like one punch knocking out the all yeah. of like the hardest men in wrestling. So he put down Steve Williams. He put down Bradshaw. And did he knock somebody else out too? There was somebody, but I don't remember who the third one he is. He beat Hardcore Holly, but that one went the distance. But there's o- people. There's always been speculation that that match was kind of worked because they were tag team partners and maybe trying to set something up. But like. In the two matches that we know for sure were shoot boxing fights, the ones of Bradshaw, two of the toughest guys in wrestling. He made Bradshaw look like an 
asshole in their fight. Yeah. He beat his ass. <laughs> Uh, wrestlers who were arrested this week. The mini lightning <laughs> round here. Um, the giant for assault after he punched a man out. Jim Neidhart for writing bad checks. Matt Bourne for public drunk <laughs> public drunkenness, <laughs> trespassing, and disorderly conduct. And Taz for indecent exposure after he was accused of exposing himself to a woman working in a tanning salon. Oh God, he did it to Sean Watson. Taz, yeah, buddy. Taz. I'm really disappointed to learn about that. Fuck. Jim Neidhart <laughs> being in the middle of that for bouncing checks is just sad. <laughs> probably wrote a check to his crack dealer for crack like, in the memo line. He's literally on television on a pay per view here, and he's writing bad checks. That sucks. <laughs> Oh, fuck me. God, we're going to talk about that match. How can we not? This is the follow-up to learning that he was on crack during this whole period. You know what him and Davey must have been getting into. Fuck. Um, Jerry Lawler allegedly injured Jim Carrey on the set of the Andy Kaufman biopic Man on the Moon. This was an this was a work. It was an attempt to replicate the success of the Lawler Kaufman David Letterman um, appearance. It did not have the same level of success. Well, of course it didn't. I mean that, and I remember Jim Carrey doing interviews at the time where he was trying to like make it a thing, and like nobody bought that shit. Like Lawler to this day maintains that Jim Carrey was like super antagonistic towards him on the set. And I can't tell if like that's Lawler still working or not. Maybe that Carrey was just doing a method acting thing. Oh, he was like that whole thing was a super method acting thing. So I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, uh, so he was like, he played the annoying Andy Kaufman character the whole yes. time. Oh yes. <laughs> he realized that Andy Kaufman was actually a very nice guy and easy to get along with in real life. And finally, The Hammer. This show received the worst reviews I've ever seen in the Wrestling Observer with one thumbs up, zero thumbs in the middle, and 112 thumbs down. Okay, so first of all, that's fucking crazy. Because that's... that's That might be worse than December to Dismember. I think Dave probably tracked down whoever gave the one thumbs up and took away their yeah. subscription. Like, you're not allowed anymore. <laughs> Dude, I would love also, to talk to the person who gave this show a thumbs up. But also, think about the other shows that have happened before this. For this to be the worst one. This is a bad show. But this it's is... Bad. It's not the worst. Steve, the Doomsday Cage match happened. <laughs> yeah, that whole pay-per-view was a fucking mess. Although that pay-per-view... I think that pay-per-view had like two that had a Regal Finley match that was really good, and this show does not have uh the equivalent of that. That is a good point. So to get into this show, it's Sunday, September the 13th, 1998. We are at the Lawrence Joel Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, on the campus of Wake Forest University, home the Wake Forest Demon Deacons basketball team, which had been enjoying a renaissance in recent years with Tim Duncan in the lineup. 
I will always remember like following them and loving Wake Forest because of Tim Duncan and how great he was then. I don't know that a a player of that magnitude has ever played for a smaller school and been that successful than he was then. Pretty weird. It's a weird one. Um, also, this is a shows. small venue, guys. Like, this is not WCW is, pay-per-view. Sold out with a reported 11,500 people there. I mean, that's not... It's better than Tupelo, Mississippi. I mean, it is, but it's just bizarre that WCW, maybe just because WWE wouldn't let them in the good buildings, but like they they, they run baby arenas for pay-per-views. It's weird. It is strange. When they're this hot, especially, like they're selling out. It feels like they could have sold out, you know, the Greensboro Coliseum here. And especially War Games, you're taking up like half of the floor seats with your double yeah. ring anyway. Yeah. Despite that gate of over $200,000 and $85,000 in merchandise, love when, you got, love when you got Zane Breslov working for WCW so you get the merch number. That's fabulous, too, because their merch sucked. Yeah. <laughs> but boy, were they selling it. Um, the show does a 0.7 buy rate for 270,000 buys up a ton from 0.53 and 195,000 the previous year for the Horsemen versus NWO War Games match. It's a huge success. Gross over $3 million from this. Like, you can't say, at least what they're putting on is they have so many fucking gigantic stars jammed into this main event. And it's War Games. You can't say that they're not putting on something that people want to pay money for, because fuck knows. Uh, on commentary, we've got the uh, 1998 team of Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, and Mike Tanay. Who boy. Yeah. So, who is the most checked out on this show? Because while it's normally Bobby, I think uh, Tony's a dark horse on this one. Man, Tony's giving him a run for his money here. Tony does not give a shit about any of this. In the beginning of the show where Tony has to read off the new rules for war games, he seems personally affronted by it. I wonder if he was, yeah, I wonder if he was madder than anybody else that they fucked with war games. Although I've heard him say he doesn't like the war games rules because he doesn't like the submission finish because he thinks it's always flat and he's right. He's right. Yeah. Um, the opening package is pretty low energy. It's just clips with generic rock music playing over it. Okay. So I got to talk about this. So throughout the course of this show, there's something bizarre going on with their like video production team. There is not one single, every single one of the videos to place before matches isn't cut or edited in any way. It's just clips of matches, clips yeah. of promo, clips of matches, clips of promo, no music, no narrative, nothing. I've never seen that from any company before. I don't, I can't explain it. Like it, I've never seen it. Uh, the announcers welcome us to the show. They go over the rules and the stakes for the new war games. And then we go to a very dapper looking mean Gene in a white tuxedo jacket. How about this? What on earth caused him to dress up this much for this show? He looks like, like James Bond. That's the Sean Connery jacket. It's like a perfect fit for him. This is like yeah. a $5,000 tux. This is incredible. War games. Uh, he's joined by Chris Jericho, who says, 
as a bonus match, he's going to wrestle Goldberg for the WCW title tonight. Now, something I didn't realize, but that this review brought to light for me, is that this was a joke Jericho was making. Because so many WCW pay-per-views in the last couple of months have had their cards completely different when the actual pay-per-view started than what was promoted. So they would just be like, bonus match, bonus match. They didn't promote half these matches. If if they promoted these matches, fewer people would have bought the show if they'd known they had to sit through Disco Inferno and Alex Wright against Bulldog and Nightheart. There were two matches on this show that were promoted that did not happen. Uh, One was Big Show versus Ming, and and the other one was Hooventude versus Kaz Hayashi. Big Show and Ming both did jobs to Goldberg on TV in the weeks leading up to this. So I guess they were going to fight for, con- the, you know, for who gets the consolation prize. Yeah, who's the bigger jabroni? <laughs> I think that Goldberg versus the Giant or Goldberg versus Ming easily could have been on this show and would have <laughs> been entertaining. This is what I'm saying. Goldberg, your biggest draw and champion, yeah. is not even doing a promo on this show. It's weird. They just had no idea what to do with him when he got the title. But it's easy. Just have him beat guy. Like, every three-minute Goldberg match blows the roof off the arena. The crowd yes. goes crazy to watch him spear and jackhammer big dudes. Like, I would have paid just to watch him do it. I don't even give a fuck who it is. And then at the end of the show, when DDP's, like, posing because he won, bring Goldberg out and have him, like, yeah. go face-to-face. Opening match, the Dancing Fools, the Boogie Knights, Disco Inferno, and Alex Wright against the Disgusting Brothers, the British Bulldog, and Jim Neidhart. The Crack Companions. My God. Like, seeing these guys team together a couple weeks after we did that SummerSlam show and talked about how they've been smoking crack all throughout the summer of 92. And, oh, man, do they look rough here. Bulldog this, looks so bad. What happened to his physique? I don't know. Neidhart looks the better oh, of the two. That's when rough. does Bulldog go to WWF for his last run? It's a year after this. It's fall of '99. Because he's got his physique back by then, and like yeah. obviously he's had to heal up from this injury he's about to get. Uh, yeah, this is the infamous match where Bulldog takes a bump on the Warriors' trap door and hurts his back. How fucking stupid is it that they were wrestling in the ring with the trap door? And we're going to get to the War Games you match. You have two rings! There's a spot. Okay, I'm just going to cover this now. But there's a spot in the Scott Hall versus Conan match where Conan kicks him down between the rings yeah. and he crawls out and outside <laughs> the ring on the outside. The way the War Games is constructed, there's no reason Warrior couldn't have just come up between the two rings and done his spot and then escaped out from beneath. There's nothing preventing them from doing that. Instead of just, yeah, having this trap door that, like, this is the worst injury anyone suffered from it, but this thing hurt a number of people. Somebody was getting hurt every week on Nitro landing on this thing. There's just a square of metal in the middle of the ring. (laughs) And on Nitro, there's nothing you can do about this, but here they have two rings, so they can just wrestle in the other ring. Yes, just don't wrestle in that one, guys. Oh, guess nobody bothered to smarten them up. That's great. 
it's bad when Bulldog, like you can see he just, the ring, that part of the ring has no give. He hits it and just bounces straight up in the air. Ugh. Which leads to the debacle finish in which he cannot get Disco up for the running power slam. Takes him three times to get this big sack of shit up on his shoulder. Fucking Disco Inferno sandbags every single move I've ever seen him take. It's really something else. Can't tell if he's a dickhead or if he's just the least athletic wrestler in history. Both can be true. Yeah, I don't think there's any reason it needs to be one or the other. 11 minutes this went. 11 minutes too long, guys. Yeah. Maybe you could have gotten five out of this, but this just didn't belong on the show. Like, no, this is terrible. a match. This would be an okay match. Like, this wouldn't be, you wouldn't be excited to see this on WCW. You might be excited for this on Saturday night. This is a Thunder match at best. At best. And really, it yeah. should be the fucking boogie nights who are going over. Because <laughs> what the yeah, hell are I, you doing with Bulldog and fucking Nightheart at this point? And you know Brett's not stroking to get them wins. He doesn't care. No. He didn't even want him here in the first place. Oh, Mean Gene is backstage. He says there's rumors that Scott Steiner isn't going to wrestle Rick Steiner tonight. And he's going to get to the bottom of it. So he talks to Steiner and Buff Bagwell. Steiner has a Band-Aid on his arm, and he says that he's injured. They have a note from their doctor saying Scott can't wrestle. J.J. Dillon comes along and rips up the doctor's note, which Scott hilariously you know, tries to piece back together. I don't think enough credit is given to Scott Steiner for how genuinely funny Very he is funny. during this part. Like Very funny in 98 99. Bagwell sucks and it doesn't really work with him, but like Steiner himself is fucking hilarious. He knows exactly what he's doing. Next up, we've got Chris Jericho against Goldberg. Um, Jericho gets a parody of Goldberg's entrance, but they get lost and can't find the ring, which is hilarious. It's a, it's a loving tribute to Spinal Tap, which Jericho literally starts talking in a British accent to get across. Like, that's fucking great. I had one burning question during the middle of this, and maybe you can answer it for me. Does this predate Gilberg? Yes. Um, okay. Wait. I think Gilberg yes, starts in 99, doesn't he? Dwayne, yeah, Dwayne Gill doesn't come to the WWF until Survivor Series when he's the mystery opponent for Mankind. So yeah, Gilbert hasn't started up yet. That's 99. I because, would if this was Dwayne Gill, it's not. Yeah, because Gilbert is just a ripoff of this. Like, there's no real question yes. about it. Um, when Jericho comes out on the stage, he's supposed to have Goldberg pyro, but instead it's just like little sparklers that don't go off and he throws a tantrum. He just keeps throwing tantrum after tantrum during all of this, and it's fantastic. What a dickhead he is. Goldberg's music comes on, and then, of course, a little dude dressed as Goldberg comes out. Here's the best part about this. From what I read from that review, 
there were arena reports that people like reported in that were actually at the show. And I want you guys to put yourself into the perspective of a fan who was there. There are no video screens. There is no <laughs> way to look at Goldberg. There were a lot of people in the upper decks who did think this was Goldberg, at least at first. <laughs> Oh, because you're if you're until far Jericho away, you can't tell. Minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if they thought Jericho just put him in the lion tamer and he gave up. Wouldn't that be the greatest moment in wrestling history? He's so li- like it's in the upper deck. He's so little. You just couldn't tell. Oh, man. But like also imagine being at war games. There's two rings. If you're in the front row by the ramp, you can't see what's happening in the other ring at all. And there's no way yeah. to know. Oh, man. So Jericho wins with the Lion Tamer in a minute. It was funny. It would be great if this was built into an actual Goldberg versus Jericho match, but we never get it, unfortunately. I mean, he does come out on what, like a nitro to spear him out of his shoes. But like we could have you could have promoted it on pay-per-view, honestly. Uh, we see footage of earlier today of Ernest Miller beating up the Armstrong brothers, and then he gets in an argument with Norman Smiley to set up a match on this show. Two things. One, this had already aired on WCW Saturday night, so they just replayed it here. Yeah, nobody Two. was watching Saturday night. Right, but they make no reference to that. This is what I'm saying. Like, There's no production like promoting these matches. They just go to clips that look like they're part of this show and don't explain it. That's the weird dissonance with the production. But also, to hear the Armstrong sadly be like, hey, man, we never get promo time. Can you go away, please? <laughs> Ruining our one promo segment we're going to get this year. Poor Armstrongs. So... Yeah, next we've got Ernest Miller versus Norman Smiley. I didn't hate this. I actually thought this was kind of a fun, you know, battle between the cats, uh, martial arts, and uh, Ernest Miller or um, Norman Smiley's grappling ability. There's nothing wrong with this that isn't with the fact this is not the cat as a fully formed character like he would become, which could be a lot yeah. of fun. Here he's really just trying to figure it out, and like I don't. It doesn't really He's taking work. himself a little too seriously here. He hasn't fully embraced being a comedy character yet. And I'm sure that they thought that they were eventually going to get him into the main event because that had to have been Bischoff's plan, right? Oh, and Bischoff like, was so into him. Here's the other thing. Karate World Champion, I believe, is actually true about Ernest Miller, but has there ever been anything that sounded faker than Karate World no. Champion? There's no point no, in even says, saying it. He says three times, which I believe is the same as Bruce Pritchard's fake karate credentials that he always talks about. Yeah, like, look, even if it is true, it sounds fake, so there's no yeah. reason to say it. <laughs> uh, Miller gets the win after about eight minutes with the feliner. I mean, this was not really a pay-per-view caliber matchup, but this was okay. I mean, you got to fill something. All your top stars are in one match in the main event, so we're going to get mean, weird that stuff. Is the, that is the problem with War Games is it does suck up almost all the top guys on the show. Yeah. And, and we're complaining about the fact that Stevie Ray was in there, but if he's not in there, I guess he could have put the Giant in there. The Giant's not on this show at all. I don't know if the Giant fits in the War Games cage, actually. He might be too tall. I mean, God knows that Sid almost murdered Brian Pillman because he was too tall and tried to he do a power. Sure bomb. did. 
Next up, we've got Rick Steiner versus Scott Steiner. Rick's got a pretty good knockoff of Welcome to the Jungle as his entrance music. Yeah, he sure does. Um, They have a match for a few minutes, and then they have to do a fucking Buff Bagwell <sighs> fake-out neck injury angle that I'm not kidding. I timed it. It went a full 10 minutes. This is an atrocity. No one in the arena believes it for one fucking second that this is real, but they take, they literally put him on the gurney, take him down the hallway. Bischoff is there and he's like real concerned on his face. If this happened post Owen Hart, all we would be talking about is how they're using Owen Hart voice. This is as manipulative and shitty a segment as I've ever seen. And we all know the payoff. Yeah. Like, we've done this. How many times have we done this already? They keep going back to this. It was so, I mean, like, it was terrifying when he had his neck injury on Thunder earlier this year. That stopped that show for 15 minutes. It was live. He was just in the middle of the ring, couldn't move. They had to take him out on the bodyboard, and that was 100% real. I'm, yeah, not a fun thing. Like, We've probably all at this point seen football games where this happened. It's not fun. It's scary. And to take advantage of that and just be like, use it as like a heel thing. Also, the way that they do it is a fucking joke, too, because like there are clever ways that you could get around this. Because the story of this is that like Scott doesn't want any part of Rick. He's terrified to actually get in the ring with him. He won't have the actual match. If at the end of this, after they close the ambulance doors, you see Scott with a big sheet eating grin on his face through the window of the ambulance. That's a more effective end of this. Then they close the doors and then they just both jump out and start punching Rick. Why? What's the point of that? Yeah. Just terrible. A bad angle, way too long and horrible taste. The fans can't bullshit the whole time. This does nothing for anybody. I hated it. I hated it with all of my heart. Next up for the cruiserweight title, we've got Juventud Guerrera defending against Silver King. Now, I don't know where Silver King mm-hmm. was on the roster at this point, but the person oh, in the yeah. review I read said, and I quote, who did he fuck to get this match? <laughs> who are you to doubt Silver King? He also said, isn't he too fat to be a luchador? Because people <laughs> in 1998 did not know what Rudos were. Legitimate question. Well, yeah, it might be too fat to be a cruiserweight. I think that's a legitimate question. Yeah, he should be like he definitely probably is not in the weight limit, but that's fine. What on earth is Silver King doing on a pay-per-view? Especially when like say that you're like the world's one little Kaz Hayashi fan. Like they promote that match. And now for some reason, it's Silver King instead. Why? Yeah. Could you have done Hoovy versus Psychosis here? That would have been good. I guess. This is not a bad match by any stretch of the imagination. Oh. I just don't know why. Silver King hits a really nice cross cross body out to the floor. Yeah. Silver King kind of rules, man. Uh, Hoovy makes a comeback. He wins with the Hoovy driver in the 450. It was fine, but this was a Nitro match. There is a moment in this where they both seem confused about what it is that they're supposed to do. Like they botch a move. I can't remember what it was. And then they just kind of like push each other a little bit. Like, will you do it? No, you do it. No, you do it. Mm. 
Conan is being interviewed backstage when a drunk Scott Hall wanders in. Talk about atrocities. Here we go. Yeah, they've decided that because Scott Hall is actually struggling struggling with alcoholism, they should make his character on the shows a sloppy drunk who drinks during his matches. And I guess bless Scott Hall for going along with it. He's like doing his best with this character. But like it's maybe it was just their way of like trying to avoid a lawsuit, but being like, Hey, if he's ever out at a club and he does something crazy, we'll just say it's the gimmick character guys. What are we doing? Next up, we've got Raven versus Saturn. Did you understand the stipulations here? Okay. So if Saturn loses, he has to be Raven's servant for the remainder of his wrestling career. I have no idea what Perry Saturn gets out of it. I think if Saturn won, the flock is freed from Raven's control. I think this is when that, Raven starts getting. I think this is when Raven starts getting really depressed because he loses the flock. That would explain why Billy Kidman does what he does because I did not understand that at all in the moment. Yeah. Um, I liked this match. This was some good stuff. This was the best match on the show, in my opinion. This is also the most overmatch on the show. The crowd is wildly into Raven. Raven was such an overheal. Like, he was a main event level heel. The reaction Goldberg got when he beat him was insane. Like, I don't think... Raven's run in WCW is kind of forgotten from history because like he's not going to do much after this at all. And then he's going to quit because he fucking hates it so much. But like the reason he hated it so much is he absolutely earned his way into the main event. And there was just no way he was ever actually going to get there. I think Bischoff just didn't get the character. It's just such a shame because like, He's putting in work and the fans again with Goldberg, not on this show. He's the most over man on this show. They do a bunch of big spots here, like a bunch of real, there, there were three or four times. I thought it was the finish and was yeah. really surprised when the, one of the guys kicked out. It's also part uh, of the reason why I think these matches were so over with Raven is that yeah. he's doing hardcore shit and he's the only one right now doing it. Yeah, and guys kicking out of the finish. I mean, Saturn kicks out of the even flow. Raven kicks out of the Death Valley driver. Um, Kidman shows up and hits Raven with a missile drop kick, which feels like that probably should have led to the finish, but it didn't. It would have made a lot more sense because that's Kidman turning on the flock and trying to free himself out yeah. of left field, which would have been like a really great shocking end, except it has no actual bearing on the ending of this match. Yeah. Canyon is handcuffed to the ring post, but he manages to get the keys away from Mickey J while he's knocked out and he uncuffs himself. He hits Saturn with the flatliner, but Saturn kicks out Saturn hits Lodi with a Death Valley driver off the apron through a table on the floor. I kicked that. Uh, Raven hits the even flow DET, but Saturn kicks out. Saturn recovers, hits the Death Valley driver, and gets the one, two, three to end a very hot match. This is, 
I will also say that the run-in to this uh, match, which was like the video that they were playing, it lasts seven minutes and 43 seconds. It was insane how long that was. There's no music. There's nothing except just clips. Endless clips. I've never seen anything like it. It's as if they had lost all of the clips that they had made like on the day of, and they're like, fuck, fuck, we got to make some more real quick. They announced that Jim Duggan had successful surgery to remove a massive cancerous tumor from his kidney. They say it was the size of a football. I don't know if they're working or shooting with that one. Let me also say this. The balls they have to come out here and expect their fans to actually believe that that's real after that Buff Bagwell shit is pretty fucking (laughs) staggering. Yeah. Unbelievably... Uh, Duggan is back in the ring less than a year after this. Yeah, being a janitor. (laughs) Next up, we've got Kurt Hennig versus Dean Malenko. These guys had a steel cage match on Nitro, but here they're going to have a regular match. That's fun, right? The bigger matches on Nitro. (laughs) Uh, at the end of that cage match, Hennig went to slam the door on Malenko's head like he did to Ric Flair, but Arn Anderson ran out and stopped him. And then later on, Arn told Malenko that he'd be proud to give him his spot in the Horseman. The reaction that old man Arn Anderson gets yeah. is like it's if wild. Steve Austin had run to the ring. Um. Why is Kurt Hennig wrestling in basketball shorts? I don't know, but I'm going to be honest with you. I actually really like it. Like it shows off how good his body is. His body is insane, but also like he's had the same look for like 20 fucking years now. Yeah. And there's just something about dirtbag NWO guys dressing like dirtbag NWO guys that I like. Like, oh, I'm in the NWO now. I don't have to look like a wrestler anymore. Who cares? Like Hogan wrestling um, in his Jinko jeans. Malenko works on Hennig's knee. He goes to put him in the cloverleaf, but Hennig pokes him in the eye. Hennig is in control for a while, but then Malenko makes a comeback. He hits Hennig with a perfect plex, but at that point, Rick Rude jumps in the ring and he breaks up the pin for the DQ. Rick Rude gets his clothes like torn to shreds here that brown he's wearing a brown suit a brown shirt and a brown tie for a man who was always renowned for fashion and looking good boy this version of rick rude sure is ugly and boring the buzz cut and these ugly ass suits he wore in wcw were just really strange it just sucks man Crowd is chanting for Flair, but they get Arn instead, and Arn gets cut off and beaten up by Root and Hennig. It's pretty scary to see him get worked over, knowing how bad his neck is. Yeah, like at the time, there was thought that he was gonna wrestle. Like that's that's what the people in these reviews that I was reading were saying, and I'm like, man, I don't. I don't think he was capable of that. But fuck, if he was in this era, he would have been back in the ring wrestling five star classics. <laughs> The st- yeah, the story I've heard him tell is he was training to get back in the ring and he ran into a guy he know- knew at the gym and the guy like slapped him on the back to say hi 
and literally his arm went numb and was numb for the rest of the day, at which point he realized he could not wrestle again. Sheesh. Thank <laughs> God he learned it then. Yeah. But again, apparently we've you know cured spinal stenosis now, so people who had career-ended neck injuries can wrestle again. It's amazing. Fucking Dan- the idea that Daniel Bryan, Page, and Edge might all be in the same wrestling promotion, yeah. wrestling like it's no big deal, is fucking crazy. Oh, next up, we've got Scott Hall versus Conan. Yep. Hall comes out first. He's got Vincent with him. He's got a drink in his hand, and he gets into the wrong ring, and the referee has to, like, tell him to get into the other ring. He does play this drunk character very well. Maybe he was actually drunk. Who knows? I think he's, like, genuinely just doing a good job. Vincent also, this is the best role Vincent's ever played, which is guy who has to disappointedly follow his drunk friend around (laughs) trying to steer him in the right direction. Really, really fits him. I'm sure that that was a shoot with DiBiase in the clubs back in the day. (laughs) They do a spot where Conan stomps Hall down into the gap between the ring. That's crazy. I love this. That's one of the best spots I've ever seen with the two rings. And again, all that proves is that Warrior could have just come up from between the rings, guys. Oh, man. Now, we have to say... This is what? It's a 12-minute match. 11 minutes and 45 seconds are just Scott Hall holding Conan in rest holds while he drinks his drink. (laughs) Literally gets him down in a hold and makes Conan hand him his drink. Not Conan, Vincent. Hand him the drink. This makes Conan look like an asshole because a, a Scott Hall who is openly drunk and stumbling around still taking him to his wrestling ass. school. Yeah. Finally, we get the finish when Hall goes to get a drink and Conan catches him with a face buster and then puts him in the tequila sunrise for the submission win. And like Conan acts like this is a huge win, which it is the biggest win of his WCW career. But he looks like an asshole in this. Yeah, could barely beat a drunk guy. All right, main event time. We got the War Games match. My best understanding of the rules of this match. Two men start. Every three minutes, a new man enters. You can win only by pinfall one fall to a finish and a fall can occur at any time. So you can get a pin before potentially if you're entering towards the end, the match could end before you even enter the match. Absolutely. And the way that they do the drawings in the back, it's that the first two had been drawn in a lottery and then the teams will be chosen at random. And then the captains will choose who they send out from their team. That's very complicated. And I didn't realize that. Michael Buffer spends like 15 minutes explaining this while like the lights are out and like this like strobe thing is going on and it just goes on and on and on. He put the work in Um, both. So Bret Hart and DDP are the first two entrants. Weirdly, they both come out to the war games music. Yes, they never. There had to have been production problems going on here. Maybe. Yeah, maybe they couldn't get their music queued up. Very strange. Um, 
no, and nobody else came out to their music, right? Everybody just ran to the ring. Everybody just runs out to silence. Yeah, I don't like that. Nope, don't Entrances care for are it. the whole point of a wrestling show. Um, like I said, I would have preferred this be elimination rules, but I just think it would have been the greatest political nightmare of all time. Trying oh, people to negotiate actually take how, losses. Yeah. Nobody's get, yeah, none of these guys do jobs. Stevie Ray's just in there to get pinned. Especially the idea that DDP was going to beat any one of these other people. No, the fuck he wasn't. Uh, Brett and DDP wrestle really smart here where they both just immediately start going for their finishers, trying to win the match before everybody else gets in there. I would have lost my mind if this match had ended in the first five minutes. That would have kicked ass. (laughs) Would have been Bret Hart's ultimate humiliation. Um, just logically, as more people enter the match, the lower your odds of winning become. Yep. Uh, Stevie Ray is the third man in. So NWO Hollywood won the coin toss and Hogan decided that Stevie should go in before him. Yep. You go, uh, soften them up for me, Stevie, even though ostensibly all Hogan cares about here is the belt. And like getting back the bell. Yeah, but Stevie Ray is under strict instructions that he's not to pin anyone. Yes. Good old Stevie Ray. He's a stooge. Uh, Sting is the fourth man in. He gets to do the spot where he jumps from one ring to the other, which is always a favorite of mine. That's the Sting spot, baby. It's the best. Piper. Comes in fifth. He attacks everybody, including his teammate DDP. He did a promo on Nitro before this where he pointed out to DDP that there were no teams. The teams didn't mean anything. That's pretty fun. Yeah. Luger comes out next. Then Kevin Nash, which means that Hogan and Warrior are the last two guys left. I mean, obviously, because Hogan wasn't going to be putting in a lot of work here. And Warrior needs to put in no work. Otherwise, he's going to expose himself. Hogan sneaks down to the ring, gets the key away from the referee, and gets in the ring. He then, him and Stevie Ray proceed to knock everyone in the match out with Stevie Ray's slapjack, the weapon. Not his finisher, the blackjack. Wasn't that always super confusing that he used a slapjack, but also used a move called the slapjack? I don't, I don't remember if the move was called the slapjack or the blackjack. Or the flapjack or the mapjack. I don't know. Yeah. So, as Hogan goes to make a pin, the ring fills with smoke. Uh, the now, warrior emerges, but he gets jumped by Hogan. But this wasn't the actual warrior, right? Wasn't this a fake warrior? Okay, so this is my question. Is that, like, it's clear that there's no way that the warrior got from underneath the ring to the backstage area to run out. But was this Renegade? Um, may have been. I was thinking maybe it was Jeff Farmer, the fake Sting. 
I mean, it very easily could have been. I don't know. But this was definitely a fake one. We're not supposed to get a good look at him. The whole idea is that there's going to be so much mist that you can't tell what's going on. Yeah. And, ooh, is that war? But the mist falls away immediately, at which point we see that it's just not actually Warrior. And then the mist comes up again, and he disappears. <laughs> This is a full minute before Warrior's supposed to come out. So they just stopped doing the clock because I guess he just missed his cue. I don't know. So then the actual Warrior appears and runs back down the aisle. Hogan manages to bail out of the ring and lock the cage behind him. Warrior jumps up, grabs the top of the cage, swings and is able to kick the door open and then jump down to the floor. Um, He managed to both tear his bicep and twist his ankle here. You notice they cut away from the landing because I think he went down and then he manages to like limp after Hogan and fight him a little bit before everybody breaks it up. This looks pretty cool while he's kicking through the cage, but then he likes just sort of slides down the cage. And instead of trying to grab anything to like brace his fall, he just falls 10 feet to the floor. What a dumbass. I just, I don't understand. It's so stupid. He looks like an asshole. Just, this is such a large chunk of this. I mean, most of this match was just really boring, punching and kicking. And then a pretty good chunk of it was this bullshit. Um, yeah, literally. I think the real question is, is this the worst war games you've ever seen? We haven't even talked about the finish, Steve. Oh, yeah. Um, everybody's <laughs> was... knocked out. And then DDP and St- DDP just gets up and diamond cuts Stevie Ray and pins him. Literally, like one second after Hogan and Warrior leave, he, Stevie Ray just turns into a diamond cutter and it's over. And then they just immediately go to black. There's no celebration for DDP. There's no nothing. It's so deflating and the fans are just silent. So, yes. What an is awful this the worst? Games? Games? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's been a long time since I've seen the one with the Dungeon of Doom, but this is probably worse. I consider the Doomsday tower to basically be a war games match oh uh, no so in which case that's the worst one but if not yeah i think this uh this one's got the record this match sucked it had no reason to happen it's entirely built around this warrior hogan thing and if that fails which it does you get nothing and now they they're still going to go along with what's going to happen at halloween havoc and at this point, they must already know that's going to be a horrible disaster. Yeah, they have. I don't think I don't think you could not do it. I it mean, yeah, there's really decent, no way. It drew a decent buy rate. Like, but that's like, God, they must already know that Warrior's done after that match. Like, we got to get that match in the ring and then we got to get him the fuck out of here. And we've talked about this, but there's this paradox where. Oh, we did a huge number. Yeah, but everybody saw the product you put on, which is a bad thing. All right. Now, before we get away from this and talk about the show as a whole, I must tell you that you, by talking about war games, have now triggered Stump Steve. No! War Games Edition. Oh, God. 
So, in the history of war games, dating all the way back to, I believe, 1986 is the first one? 1987. July 4th, 1987. There have been a shitload of war games. 41 in total. 41? Fuck me. Okay, like 20 of them were in one summer. Yes. So, most of them were all house shows. And then once they start being on pay-per-view, there was that. And then there have been a bunch for WWE as well. So I have two questions for you for two separate points. Oh, my God. You are now, uh, we are now, I believe, two and eight is where you're at. Okay. The first thing I want to know is, who is the man who has appeared in the most War Games matches? Oh. With 19. I it's got to be Arn Anderson, right? Arn Anderson is not correct. Oh, who is it? Arn Anderson has appeared in uh, 18 War Games matches. Sting has appeared in 19 War Games matches. Really? Sting was in all of those ones from that summer. I didn't realize that. He was and in then seven was in the NWO. Seven in the NWA, 12 in WCW. That's right. And then he was in the one with the Dungeon of Doom, and he was in the one against the NWO team. Yep. And Arn wasn't in the Dungeon of Doom one. Yep, he missed one. There we go. Now, second question. There are two people who have a perfect, flawless 13-0 record in War Games, and there are two people who have a flawless Oh, and 15 record in war games <laughs> during the NWA period. Can you tell me who they are? So you say during this, so this doesn't count anything after like 1990. Correct. NWA only. Okay. I'm going to say, okay, wait, how many people is it? Two people are 13 and oh, two people are oh, and 15. I'm going to say Sting is one of the people who's undefeated. He is undefeated, but he's only seven and seven. Ah, but I won't count that as your guess. Cause I did already just tell you that. Um, and who was in all those matches? Um, Sting squadron. Uh, the two guys who are undefeated, the Road Warriors? The Road Warriors, both 13-0. and 0. Okay, so I'm not going 0 for this week. That's right. But can you tell me who was 0-15? They are also a tag team, though they were primarily not a tag team in this promotion. Okay, so it's Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. There you go, 0-15, yes. So Flair was in one that he won at one point? Nope, but he was in one that he wasn't in. He was 0-14. Oh, they held him out of one. Yes. He was 0-14. J.J. Dillon was 0-13. Barry Windham was 1-12. The losingest man in war games, Steve? Arn Anderson, 0-18. Arn Anderson never won a single war games match. Never won a war games. real. Yeah, because he was on the losing end of all those ones against Sting's team, and then he was on the Dangerous Alliance team that lost, and then he was on 
the NW the WCW team that lost to the NWO in '96. Yep. And I think he was. Didn't he have a thing where it was like him and Terry Funk and somebody against the against uh, the Rhodeses? That sounds right. Yeah. I was gonna ask you who was the winningest in the WWE ones, but there's a seven way tie for two wins, so I don't think that's very fun. Yeah. I um. I don't know. I didn't even pay attention to most of the NXT ones. It's just Adam Cole, Bobby Fish, Kyle O'Reilly. Uh, and, and then Candice no. LeRae, Rachel Gonzalez, and Dakota Kai. Like, it's... Yeah, no. All right. So, wrapping up here. I mean, an irredeemably bad show. I think as bad God. as its reputation. Probably, I mean, not... It's not the worst WCW show I've ever seen. They would do much worse than this in the years to come. And I don't think you can say it's as bad as like the 1991 Great American Bash. Truth be told, I had always clowned on the show for Stevie Ray being in the main event, but I never actually knew much about this show. It's not one of the ones that people talk about as one of the worst shows of all time. And it's not one of the worst shows of all time per se, but it sure did fucking suck. Yeah. It's just sad to see how fast WCW started going downhill here. But it's also amazing because Halloween Havoc is about to be like, I know that the Hogan Warrior match is an atrocity, but like other than that, it's a good show. Yeah. I mean, also uh, some, one of the things that was mentioned during the reviews is that apparently it went black on this show, like a couple of times during the course of the show, like, like the feed cut out. Yeah, I never so, know what that is, whether that's like they cut out a promo for something or what yeah. that is, or if those are those just the ad breaks for the for Peacock because I have the premium Peacock now. No, no, because these reviews were live for people watching the show in '98. Oh, interesting. So I don't know if there were production issues. Moreover, I'm not really sure. I just figured I'd throw that in. This is not All a right. company that's got its shit together. No, it's all falling apart. So that's a wrap for Fall Brawl 1998. Next time, we're going to cover another disaster. Randy Orton's first world heavyweight title reign. We talked about how he won the belt at um, SummerSlam 2004 a few weeks ago. Now we're going to talk about what he did after that and how he lost the belt a month later as we cover Unforgiven 2004. I can't believe that we've really never talked about this title reign and how it was, it basically writes the future of WWE. If it had worked out, the future we're in now is totally fucking different. Yeah. Yeah. This opens the room up for Batista and eventually John Cena. And, but like they rush it. This is so bad. Is this the one with the concussion match or is that later? Triple H and Orton uh, have a match for like Orton gets the Royal Okay, okay. Yeah. But man, what a fart this is when he loses the belt one month later. I can't wait to bury this entire show from start to finish. Yeah. We'll have all that more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time. <laughs>